0: I'm Philippe Kanchan. Uh, I'm a physician and professor at the University of Southern Denmark and research professor at the University of Rhode Island. Great. And you're here
1: testifying in the fluoride lawsuit, the fluoride trial as an expert witness. Uh, could you, before we get into that, could you provide a little bit of background on your research into mercury? You're one of the leading experts in uh, mercury and toxicity of that. Could you speak about that?
0: I've done population studies on mercury exposure, in particular in regard to the adverse effects on brain development in children that have been exposed uh, since uh, the beginning of life uh, to mercury from the mother's diet. And um, I've also done research on fluoride. It started um, uh, (laughs) about 50 years ago because um, Copenhagen in Denmark was where fluoride poisoning was discovered uh, in the form of what's called skeletal fluorosis, which means that uh, the bones uh, become denser and on the x-ray it looks like marble. Uh, And uh, it also tends to get more brittle so that you would more easily break your arm. And way back then when that was discovered in the 1930s it was also discovered that the workers who had these high exposures had uh, symptoms from the central nervous system. That is that fluoride likely was affecting the functions of the brain. So we have now lately followed that up in regard to brain development in small children. And
1: so before we get into the, the lawsuit itself, you mentioned the research in the 1930s and that was Kaj Roholm. is that how you say the name, say his name? And could you speak a little bit about what, you, you were sort of touching on it, he was studying the cryolite um,
0: mines in Greenland. So the early studies that were done in the 1930s were carried out by Kai Roham. A physician and later professor at the University of Copenhagen and he published his thesis on the bone disease of the workers and what I did uh, later on was to follow up by looking at the mortality of the cryolite workers uh, who had uh, the this elevated exposures to uh, fluoride And the main finding was that there was an excess occurrence of bladder cancer with the risk increasing with the duration of employment at the factory, that is the duration of fluoride exposure. But um, very little attention has been paid to this lately because fluoride has been oftentimes considered Uh, a subject that one should not deal with because fluoride is considered very beneficial for dental health.
1: And here we are almost a hundred years later and uh, there's this lawsuit happening here in the United States Um, and as you said it's really still probably the majority of the public is not very aware of the various concerns related to uh, fluoride and water fluoridation this lawsuit is specifically dealing with uh, the t- effects of fluoride on neurodevelopment and claims of lowering IQ in children. Do you support the, uh, the statements of the National Toxicology Program draft report that concluded that there was an association between higher fluoride exposure and lower IQ in children?
0: I do support the uh, NTP report. It was thoroughly done by highly qualified colleagues uh, what I have done is to study the association between the mother's exposure to fluoride and the children's uh, brain development, that is the, the IQ at school age, at about age seven. And uh, Denmark is a country where addition of fluoride to drinking water is illegal. So. Um, We studied a population with uh, background exposures to fluoride that is lower than fluoridated uh, communities in the United States. And fortunately, uh, our study didn't show that there was any association between the fluoride exposure and the IQ of the children at the background level that we have in Denmark. And so we,
1: you're being called as an expert witness. You were testifying today, cross-examined by the EPA, by the government. Uh, underwent some pretty intense scrutiny. Uh, do you feel? How do you feel about your testimony? I mean, do you feel you were able to convey uh, your points and, and your
0: expert viewpoint fairly? What What we did was to collaborate between two uh, the Danish study and the two North American studies, one one carried out uh, with uh, support from the US uh, National Institutes of Health in Mexico, and the other one carried out in Canada. And when we merge all the findings, we can see that there is a tendency, the higher the fluoride exposure during fetal life, that is from the mother's exposure, the greater the uh, loss in IQ at school age and um, it's like um, the overall average is that for each milligram of additional fluoride the child will lose two IQ points and one milligram is uh, something that can easily happen in this country because there is 0.7 milligrams of fluoride per liter of drinking water in the fluoridated communities and if you drink a couple of uh, liters of uh, of community water uh, you easily uh, get a couple of uh, milligrams of extra fluoride and that is certainly according to our findings is associated with a loss in cognitive function, that is in IQ, of the baby uh, and the child as we examined at school age.
1: And, and what you just described there also doesn't, in, doesn't include extra sources of fluoride exposure from food or pesticides and these other things, correct?
0: That there is, of course, a certain background exposure to uh, fluoride uh, uh, because there's, for example, some fluoride in seafood. And, and certainly, in, in this country, if you have fluoridated water, then that may also affect the production of soft drinks, uh, whether it's a Coca-Cola or whatever it is, if it's if it's based on fluoridated uh, drinking water, or canned food uh, or um, uh, restaurant food. Uh, so the, the fluoridation of drinking water. Uh, may affect people beyond the communities where there is uh, fluoridation that has been approved locally
1: um, in the first phase of the trial, when you testified in back in two thousand and twenty, there was some discussion about one of your studies um, that also found similar conclusions about fluoride being a neurotoxin, and if i 'm reading this correctly, if I remember this correctly, you stated that um, you were coerced by a colleague at the Harvard Dental School to sort of sign a statement that sort of downplayed the significance of your study. Could you speak to that incident?
0: To understand uh, fluoride better, we um, carried out a a joint analysis of all of the publications uh, we could find that related to early life exposure to fluoride, and brain function uh, in childhood and that got published in a journal that's put out by the National Institutes of Health and when that was published uh, a professor from Harvard University uh, came to my office and asked me to sign a statement that my work on fluoride had nothing to do with fluoridation. And um, he he actually uh, wrote this draft. I I still have have it in in my possession. And since I didn't uh, sign this immediately, he instead went to my dean and uh, had the dean sign a statement that he supported uh, water fluoridation in accordance with the policy of the Centers for for Disease Control, CDC. Uh, my dean had not yet seen my publication on fluoride, and therefore he had no concern uh, signing it. Um, and later on I was told by uh, the leadership at, at Harvard that uh, my research on, on fluoride uh, was unwanted and had never been approved by Harvard. So um, be, because we, we couldn't agree on my what I would consider academic freedom, uh, I left Harvard.
1: And another statement you made in 2020, you said that the fluoride lobby, uh, in quotes, had infiltrated the World Health Organization Committee uh, and that they were seeking to exclude any mention of harmful effects of fluoride. Could you speak to that, your experience or your involvement or awareness
0: of the, for lack of a better term, fluoride lobby influencing the WHO? My experience with fluoride actually goes back many years because of The World Health Organization asked me to help them develop what they called an environmental health criteria document on fluoride. So I drafted uh, that document that reviewed uh, the sources of fluoride in the environment, including drinking water, uh, the animal data, and the epidemiology. Uh, and um, WHO then called a working group to develop the final version of that based on my draft. And what happened was that um, the working group uh, had, I think it was a majority of uh, people with uh, dental um, research backgrounds. And um, they inserted changes in my draft, indicating that fluoride could perhaps be toxic, but only at immense uh, concentrations. And um, when I um, protested and said that in in accordance with the scientific documentation, it would be wrong to insert the word immense. And so um, uh, the working group uh, asked me to kindly go to the library and and bring the documentation back. And so I, I said under the circumstances, I could not take responsibility for being part of the authorship so I would rather leave the WHO meeting, which I did. It's the only time I've ever done that. But I was confronted with colleagues from the dental uh, science. Uh, and, and they insisted on changes that I found scientifically inappropriate. And so uh, WHO published a document and uh, without my name, because I'd asked to have my name stricken, but, but then they inserted uh, some other colleague's name um, as the author of the draft, which, which is of course er- erroneous, but that w- was what WHO felt was necessary in order to protect the interests of water fluoridation
1: okay final question here you know with everything you just shared there about meetings at the World Health Organization um, you know colleagues at Harvard pressuring you we're living in a time at least in the United States where a lot of Americans are told that this there's an anti-science sentiment that people don't trust scientists and some people would say there's plenty of reasons to be skeptical of the science others say you know you're you're believing in conspiracy theories you know for example with fluoride as a journalist talking about fluoride doesn't get you any new friends. It definitely gets you called crazy for even addressing this subject. Would you have any advice to the, the general public of how you know, lay people can try to navigate this when you have scientists on one side like yourself and Dr. Bruce Lanfear and Howard who, who seem to be really trying to bring the truth of the, you know, following the science wherever it goes and then there clearly is some influence from industry and other powers how can we navigate that, you know, still trying to hold on to the scientific method but also not just blindly trusting people?
0: It's a problem um, for researchers who deal with topics that are relevant uh, to society on the one hand this is what we really need science for because we need the documentation to um, make prudent and res- responsible decisions in the policy making for the benefit of public health unfortunately sometimes there are vested interests and and it could be uh, uh, industries that depend on production of toxic chemicals—that uh, that will be a very uh, straightforward example—but in regard to fluoride, it, it's a very unusual situation because it's colleagues from within the health sector who are fighting their colleagues who work on the toxicology of uh, fluoride, and so. F- I, I think it's important um, for the public to know that uh, they have to retain a little bit of skepticism. We, we're trying to be objective in science, I, I, I believe that, that I am, but but sometimes when my findings are counter to other interests, then uh, unfortunately there will be uh, counteraction, so to speak, and uh, that may not be understood by the public that that there's really something going on here which is beyond science but has to do with the applications of that particular science. So um, uh, I would still say that uh, I'm, I'm also the editor of a scientific journal. We, we try to communicate the best of science, science that is valid and science that we can respond to and react on because we trust it. But it's clear that um, it, it is possible that there are, that, that counter reactions can, can happen like it has happened with, with fluoride and, and so, Um, I I do my best to communicate what I know uh, also through my teaching and uh, through public communication Um, but but it's important that we convey that um, uh, we we can't be sure that a hundred percent of what's published as science is necessarily correct and fluoride uh, and Well, I mean, there are lots of examples like PFAS or LEAD, where there has been so-called scientific publications that were really rather a matter of marketing.